You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, This morning we're going to be jumping around a little bit into some different passages, so I would encourage you to have a Bible. If you need one, go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, we have some gentlemen who are happy to pass those out for you. And this morning we are going to be looking at a message titled, Living with Gratitude. Living with gratitude. I got to put this into practice right after Sunday service last week. Um, What I like to do is I usually get home at about 3 o'clock. And the first thing I do is I get out of my church clothes and into my stretchy clothes. It's the first thing that happens when I go home. And as I was changing, I noticed in the back of my jeans was a hole this big. And nobody said anything. Which means one of two things. No one's checking me out at church. Well done. I know it's hard, but... Or two, like just nobody noticed, which is probably the greater possibility. And I was very thankful. I was filled with gratitude that nobody noticed the giant hole in my pants. We will talk later. (laughs) When we think of gratitude, we know that we should be thankful. We know that we should have grateful hearts. We know that even in some of the worst of our circumstances, there's always something to be thankful about. But there's a difference between being told that we need to have gratitude and then understanding what it is to live with gratitude. And the most perfect example of someone who lived with gratitude, even in all circumstances, obviously would be Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14, we know that Jesus understands that he's going to the cross. He has full knowledge of what suffering and pain is awaiting him. And yet there, as he's with his disciples for the Last Supper, listen to how Jesus speaks to them. Luke 22 says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We know that the Passover, the Passover lamb, Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament representation. Then it says he took the cup and gave thanks. And Jesus did the same thing with the bread when he broke it. He gave thanks. How in the midst of what Jesus was about to face could he have a heart full of gratitude, of thanksgiving? And part of the answer to that is, well, he's Jesus, right? He has no sin in him. He does not have a sin nature. Therefore, his heart's natural default is to be grateful and thankful but where does that leave us how many of you are naturally thankful for everything just jasmine (laughs) that's probably true actually (laughs) 
Most of us are not because we have a sinful nature. And our sinful nature leads us to have a default of complaining or anger or frustration or wallowing in self-pity or blaming others or looking at the circumstances and they're not good enough, whatever it is. And we're kind of left in this position of, well, how do we live with gratitude? I know I'm supposed to have it, but how do we live with gratitude? And I think one of the ways it can be helpful for us to understand what it looks like to live with gratitude is to understand our sinful default position as the starting point. And really, that sinful default position is entitlement. Entitlement. And entitlement is the enemy of gratitude. Entitlement is the enemy of gratitude. Now, from a generational standpoint, which generation is considered the most entitled? This one. Uh, the millennial generation, right? I'm, not, I'm on the older end of the millennial generation, but we are called the most entitled generation. But here's what I know about entitlement. It is not discriminatory in regards to what generation it is a part of. Yes, for the millennial generation, uh, very entitled in regards to, hey, if I get a four-year degree, my expectation is to get this kind of job right out of college, making $85,000 a year, getting to participate in nap pods at my work, and getting a, a company car. But for other generations, it's not much different. I know for the older generation, you guys get set in your ways. And it's often, hey, because I've done this in my life, and I've done this in my life, and I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow to school, I get it this way. And it's not going to change. And our natural default position is that we are entitled. We feel that we're owed something, that we deserve something. And we see how that even creeps into our theology and our way that we live our life. You don't have to participate in raising your hands in this, but how many of you have ever felt like, hey, I've been serving God faithfully, and then things don't go your way. You ever catch yourself going, God, where are you? I think you owe me. I've been going to church for this long, or I've been serving in this ministry for this long, or I've been faithfully paying my tithes for this long, and this is how I get repaid? And we have this feeling of entitlement. And some of the things that entitlement or an entitled spirit produces, one is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Um, in our culture, we have something called the American dream. And it is pretty amazing about our country. It's one of the things that makes our country set apart from other places is that for many people, if you put in some hard work and you probably have to have some connections, you can literally achieve anything from a capitalist standpoint. But oftentimes, that selfish ambition in order to achieve success, in order to get a certain title, in order to earn a certain paycheck or to get a degree, we find that the reason why we're working hard or the reason that we're working with excellence is for the purpose of serving self. Selfish ambition. Sometimes we are willing to succeed at the expense of others. We see this a lot in businesses. A lot of businesses that make a lot of money make money off of the cheap labor that they employ in other countries. Not paying wages that are fair. Not providing working conditions that are right for people to work in. 
And that's due to selfish ambition. It's an entitled state of mind. We also see that an entitled spirit produces self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. We see this uh, in our own government, right? Here's the mandates. Here's the rules. Here's everything you need to abide by. But who doesn't have to play by the rules? Oftentimes they don't, right? It ends up in the headlines. Or we know that the Bible talks about what happens when an entire country or community does what's right in their own eyes. When we justify our sin, when we play by our rules, when we do not hold to the standard of God's word, it becomes chaotic and messy. An entitled spirit produces self-reliance. This is probably the one that I struggle with the most. How many of you are fixers in here? Like you see a problem or you hear a problem, you're like, I can fix it. Like seven of you are honest. Amazing. (laughs) Self-reliance really, when we break it down, becomes a savior complex. I can handle this on my own through my abilities, my intelligence, my perseverance. I can fix whatever problem you have. And we even see this come out in good organizations that end up having a wrong understanding of where their place is supposed to be in God's kingdom. When we think about social justice, when we think about treating our planet better, are these good things or bad things? These are good things. This isn't a trick question, right? These are good things. But when they begin to take the place of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that has the power to save, they become a bad thing. And people start trying to win converts for social justice or win converts for saving the dolphins or don't use plastic straws, use paper straws wrapped in plastic, whatever it is. (laughs) But we become self-reliant in I can fix this. And the reality is the only one who can fix what we need the most is Jesus Christ. And through an entitled spirit, we see selfish ambition, self-righteousness, and self-reliance, which often leads to an even bigger problem or the root of the heart condition, which we are born into because of our sin nature. John Piper says it this way. He says, our underlying problem is a deep desire not to find our satisfaction in God's greatness, but in our own. And maybe you're saying here today, like, hey, listen, I don't wake up in the morning trying to figure out how I'm going to do great, but it's our natural default. It's what we end up doing. Uh, Over Thanksgiving dinner, it was (laughs) one of the staples at at our Thanksgiving dinner is King's Hawaiian Rolls. Anybody else do King's Hawaiian Rolls? Um, My kids love King's Hawaiian Rolls, right? Like Thanksgiving plates like this big, and there's a section for turkey. There's a section for something green, which is literally one leaf of a Caesar salad. There's like some jello, and then there's five King's Hawaiian Rolls. And at some point, my wife and I have to like stop our kids from eating all the King's Hawaiian Rolls, and they've already had seven at this point, and you come, you're like, hey, buddy, um, no more King's Hawaiian Rolls. And what's the response? That was really nice. I wish it was like that, right? You guys are like, oh, no. It's like, oh, but there's a whole basket. I'm like, yeah, but it's not all for you, and it's not good for you to eat that much bread. And the reality is, is when we look at the lives of children, 
They wear everything outwardly, which we as adults have simply learned to hide inwardly. It may not be King's Hawaiian rolls, maybe it is for you. But oftentimes we find that we have hearts that begin to complain or to compare or to blame or to feel like something isn't fair and we start pointing the finger at God. How do we live with gratitude? How do we live with gratitude? We know that we're supposed to be thankful. But if our gratitude is short-sighted, if it's limited to what's just in front of us now, then we're missing out on all the abundance that God has for us by what he's already done, not by what we need to achieve. Jesus speaks to the religious leaders of his day. And this is probably one of the most profound examples that he uses is the gross corruption that can often happen in religious institutions with leaders. And he says this about the scribes and the Pharisees. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 46, he says, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. Now for Jesus' day, here were these priests, here were these pastors, here were these church leaders, and they gave the outward look of piety which meant that they lived at least holy lives on the surface. But they would also wear some pretty extravagant clothing. They would also be drawing attention to themselves in regards to how holy they were. And ultimately, why were they drawing attention to themselves? For what reason? For position, for power, to be liked, right? I mean, I wear holy pants on Sunday so that no one thinks I'm above them. It's the perfect way to go. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their poverty property and then pretend to be pious and making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. Instead of having hearts of gratitude, they have hearts that desire to use their position in order to build themselves up. And God takes this very seriously, not only in the church, but this can be applied to business. This can be applied to the way that we portray ourselves on social media. Why do we do certain things? Why do we dress certain ways? Is it so that we can get the attention of others so that they can build us up? with vain comments? How do we live with gratitude? And I believe that our gratitude begins when our striving comes to an end. Gratitude begins when our striving ends. And striving is this. Striving is doing things in our own strength. This is one of the things that is a struggle for me because when you get good at something, It's just second nature to hit repeat and hit repeat and hit repeat. But oftentimes what we can do is even in the giftings, the talents, the things that God has gifted us, we can find that we're doing those things out of our own strength instead of laying them at the feet of Jesus. In our striving, I am the foundation of my life. 
It's my resilience, my power, my relentless pursuit of those goals or that success that I have that causes me to strive. And the beauty is when you come to Christ, when you are given the gospel of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's the gospel that sets us free from the bondage of having to strive. Because it's at the foot of the cross, it's at the gospel, where despite our best efforts, Romans 3.23 makes it very clear, for all have sinned and have what? We fall short. We fall short. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we white knuckle something, we can't achieve what is needed in order for salvation. We can't earn God's love. We can't be gifted his value or his worth. Excuse me, we can't earn his worth or value. Instead, it is gifted. Notice in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's God's mercy and his grace that rescue us from sin and relieve us from the need to strive in order to be of value. Therefore, my good works, my hard work, and my pursuit of goals and desires, the result begins to change. How many of you have ever wondered, hey, am I striving right now or am I serving Jesus? Anybody ever wonder what you're doing? I think that there can definitely be some gray areas, but what's important to know is that it's a heart condition that provides the answer to that question, whether we're striving in our own strength or whether we're having a heart of gratitude for what God has provided. When it comes to that striving, the striving is for the purpose of earning something. When we are working out of what God has already gifted us in Jesus Christ, we know that the good works that we do are actually coming out of what has already been done for us. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2. Let's read this all together nice and loud. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. Let's stay there for just a moment. Let's go back to verse 19. Thank you. When I tried to keep the law, when I tried to be perfect, when I tried to be enough, when I tried to earn God's favor, when I tried to be the husband that I'm supposed to be, when I tried to be the father that I'm supposed to be, ultimately, what happens? I what? I fall short. And the law condemns me. It's my sin. And so dying to the law simply means I'm not going to try to be perfect any longer. I'm going to try to obey God's commands, but knowing that I'm going to fall short. Verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Gratitude begins when our striving ends, which means when we come to the end of ourself. When our flesh begins to be put to death, it's Christ who can live more and more with us. And I wanted to look at maybe some examples of what this looks like according to God's word. We're going to bounce around a little bit in the scripture. You can get your Bibles out. And before we get into the first passage, I'm going to give you a point. Gratitude is the result of knowing God's love for us, not the love for our circumstances. Gratitude is the result of knowing God's love for us, not the love for our circumstances. When things are going well in your life, how many of you are pretty grateful? Probably most of us. When things are difficult, when you're facing trials or sickness or hardship in finances or relationship, how many of you find it difficult to be grateful? And sometimes there's that gratefulness of like, well, it's not as bad as it could be, right? Um, anybody ever say that? You're like, hey, how you doing? And you're like, well, oh, it's not as bad as it could be. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> not really sure that's what God's after. Uh, the night before Thanksgiving happened, my boys were getting a little rowdy. And so my response to them getting rowdy is getting rowdy with them. And so the six-year-old Levi he was just running around like a crazy person. So I picked him up by a shirt collar and I body slammed him on the couch, which he thinks is amazing, right? He loves it. And so Zeke sees this happen and he's like, oh, it's my turn. So he runs over and I pick him up by the shirt collar and pile drive him onto his brother. And his elbow comes down and hits Levi square in the teeth. And you know that sound when teeth come loose? It's like that little click. <laughs> And the blood starts coming out and the tears start happening. And as a good dad, I said, hey, be grateful you have a dad who plays with you. <laughs> Just kidding. I did not say that. <laughs> That's a misunderstanding of gratitude. Where gratitude comes from is the love that God has for us. And in that moment of literally knocking Levi's two, fortunately, baby teeth loose, one is gone, another one's hanging on by one of those little <laughs> threads of gum. Um, it's my job to, to love on him, to hold him, to comfort him. Nobody did anything wrong. We were just playing. But it hurts sometimes. And does life ever punch you in the teeth? You ever feel like you get the wind knocked out of you emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically? How do we respond in those moments? What do we cling to when those things happen to us? And when we have understanding of the depth of God's love for us, it produces gratitude in our life. And it's so often that our gratitude is defined by our earthly circumstances or what's right there in front of us. And yet God wants to lead us to a place where it's not about our circumstances. It's about his love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Open up to Daniel chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. Just about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. 
Daniel chapter 6. And as you're turning to Daniel 6, just give you a little background on Daniel. Daniel was from a royal family. He grew up with the princes of Judah. He lived in Jerusalem. And during his early teenage years, the world power, Babylon, came in and besieged Jerusalem and literally took the best and brightest young men out of the city and back to their city's capital. It's like Daniel was transported from Jerusalem into Las Vegas. That's the, that's the modern day equivalent of where he was living. And from an early age, Daniel faced some pretty significant challenges. He was given full access to the all-you-can-eat buffet in Babylon. An open bar, dancing girls, it was all there available for him as a young teenage man. And yet we know early in Daniel, it says that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And from an early age, he would pray throughout the day and he would give God thanks. And by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is now an old man. He's still in Babylon. He's still separated from his family. He's never been able to go back to Jerusalem, nor does he go back to Jerusalem. He's had some pretty big success from a worldly standpoint in Babylon, even to the point of becoming second in command for some of the kings of Babylon. But Daniel has never measured his success by his earthly standards. He's always measured his success by his obedience and his walk with the Lord. And there are some men in the kingdom who want to be rid of Daniel. They want his position. They want his power. He probably had a lot of property at this point because of just his wisdom and where he had been set in the kingdom by the various kings that he had gone through in Babylon and now the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And it says that these men conspire against Daniel and they come up with an edict. And here's what the edict says. They take it to King Darius, who's really king over the known world at this point. And they go, hey, king, we have a, a great idea that you should make a law. For the next 30 days, no one should pray to anybody except you. Now, remember, what's our default position as sinful human beings? Entitlement. King Darius was what? Entitled. And he went, that's a brilliant idea. I love it. Let's put it into law. And so he signs it. And even the king, once he signed a law, according to the Medes and Persians, cannot reverse it. And the reason why these men did this is because they knew that Daniel, three times a day, would go into his upper room and he would pray. And here was the consequence for anyone who broke this edict. They would be cast into a den of lions where they would be eaten alive. And we pick up in Daniel chapter 6 verses 10 and 11. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. And prayed and did what? And gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Isn't it interesting that Daniel is now facing death if he chooses to openly pray? And yet, what is his response to this law that has been passed? He has a heart filled with what? Thanksgiving. 
of gratitude. How could he possibly be grateful at this point? I mean, let's just think about the circumstances. God, it was bad enough that I get taken out of your holy city, Jerusalem, when I'm a teenager. I'm separated from my family for, at this point, about 60 years. I don't have a temple to worship in. I can't be in regular fellowship with other Jews. But God, I've served you faithfully. I've always done what is right in regards to the wisdom I've given the king. I've not been afraid to speak out. And this is how you repay me? At the end of my life, I'm going to die by getting eaten by lions? That would have been an understandable response by Daniel. But instead, he goes back to his room. He prays and he gives thanks. What could he possibly be thankful for in this moment? What could he possibly be getting on his knees and having a heart filled with gratitude in this moment? And we find the answer in chapter 10. Go to Daniel chapter 10. I appreciate you guys bouncing around with me this morning. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is visited by an angel. And it says in verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me. This is that angelic hand, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And the angel said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. What is Daniel being reminded of? That he is what? That he is loved. That he is loved. He's called a beloved one. What an incredible picture. This old man. Daniel's probably in his late 70s to early 80s at this point. And he had a hard life. He's an old man. And God, like a good father, just scoops Daniel up into his lap and is like, Oh, Daniel, you are beloved by me. How many of us need that understanding when we're going through the difficult seasons of our life? How many of us need to be reminded that regardless of our earthly circumstances that we're facing, that we are God's beloved? Not because of anything we've done, but because what has been done for us through Christ Jesus. What I love about Daniel is all the good things that he did in those 12 chapters of the book. None of it has to do with him earning or working for God's love. All of it has to do with he was loved, therefore he got to do all these good things as a response to God's love. Do you see the difference? One is a response of gratitude for what's been done for him. The other one is trying to earn and deserve what you never could. Gratitude is the result of knowing God's love for us, not the love for our circumstances. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come in the future, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, 
will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No matter what you face, according to God's word and according to the gospel of Jesus, which is his life, death and resurrection, you cannot be separated from his love. It's something to cling on to when we're struggling. It's something to cling on to when we're facing difficulties in our life. The next example begins with this point. Gratitude is a proper response when we are forgiven of our sin. Gratitude is a proper response when we are forgiven of our sin. Think about where our mind, our heart, our spirit goes when we know that we have been sinning. What is often our response to our own sin? Shame. Shame. Guilt. Guilt. Embarrassment. Fear. Self-pity. Wallowing in that self-pity. Blaming others. Getting angry. All these things can be responses to our own sin. And yet, it's through forgiveness... And this is amazing. This is how powerful God is. He can take the very things that we've done wrong, which is not what he has planned for our life. And yet he can take that and through repentance, which leads to forgiveness, he can give us a heart of what? A heart of gratitude for what he has done, for what he's forgiving us of. Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. I want you to think of this point. Gratitude is a a proper response when we are forgiven of our sin. Think about Jonah. Here's some facts about Jonah. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25 tells us that Jonah was a prophet. In the days of Israel under King Jeroboam II. And he was a well-known prophet. He was a successful prophet. Everybody liked Jonah. Now let's just think about this for a moment. What's a prophet's job? <laughs> to prophesy. <laughs> Who said that? You're a genius, whoever you are. A prophet's job is to prophesy. A prophet's job is being a messenger of God. Therefore, who's your boss? God. What an incredible job. Now, if you've read the prophets, some of you are like, no, you can't trick me. That's not entirely true. But for Jonah, his boss was God. And God would give him words to speak and take to the people Israel. What an incredibly high calling. And yet Jonah, when called by God to take a message of judgment and repentance to San Francisco, chooses not to do it. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was known for being an atrociously wicked city in every way you can imagine. We don't have to list them. It was just bad. They made lifestyles and livelihoods out of their wickedness. And God tells Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach a message that destruction is coming upon this city in 40 days if they do not turn from their wicked ways. And Jonah's response is... No way. 
I'm not doing it. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And so Jonah gets on a ship and literally heads the opposite way. And you know the story. God sends a terrible storm upon the ship. They're offloading everything. It's not helping. They finally determine Jonah is the problem. They throw Jonah overboard. And what happens? He ends up in a worse place than San Francisco. He ends up in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. And here is what's amazing. Do not miss this. Remember our point. Our point is gratitude is a proper response when we are forgiven of our sin. Jonah finds more of God in the belly of a whale than he did when he was high on his horse walking as a prophet. Let this encourage you, church family. Sometimes when we are in our sin and we confess and we feel awful and we're just beating ourselves up, sometimes that is God's way of getting a hold of your heart in a deeper way than he ever could if you were just simply kind of moseying on through life with everything being good. Notice what Jonah says. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And here is what he said. Here is his cry of repentance. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. What's Jonah's affliction? He's in a whale. (laughs) Out of the belly of Sheol or out of the belly of hell, I cried. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. Notice, who does Jonah attribute this to? It's to God. You cast me into the deep. And God's like, you bet I did. Because I'm going to pursue you to the end of yourself. That's how much I want you. That's how bad I want to get to your heart. And I'm willing to go to the ends of the earth to bring you to a place where you cry out to me. That's the Savior that we worship. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. How many of you ever feel like you're so far away from God that there's no way he can hear you? There's no way that he sees you. There's no way that he can comfort you. Many of us experience this. And listen, the circumstances we face on earth are serious. Divorce, loss of a loved one, financial ruin, estrangement with children, broken relationships. These are all incredibly painful. God does not make light of our circumstances, but he wants to put them in their proper place compared to what he has done for us. Verse 5, the temple, or excuse me, the waters surrounded me. Even to my soul can hear the depths of Jonah's cry. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. I want to stop here for just a moment. How does God bring Jonah's life up from the pit? What is the key that we're looking at in this particular passage? It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. 
You see, Jonah in the depths of this whale realized, oh my goodness, how good I have it to be a servant of the Lord, to be called by his name, to deliver messages on God's behalf that can change the hearts and lives and eternal standing of people. We spent the past three weeks looking at making disciples. That's what we're called to do. That's the command of Jesus. What a high calling every Christian has, regardless of your vocation, regardless of your financial status, regardless of whether you're retired, a mom, a dad, a single. It doesn't matter. You're called to make disciples of the most high God. And Jonah realizes You have brought up my life from the pit. His sin has brought on godly sorrow. And when godly sorrow gives birth to repentance, it allows us to receive forgiveness. And when we have understanding of the depths of what God has forgiven us for, it gives us a heart of what? A heart of gratitude. Isn't that interesting? That we can be at some of our lowest points in our life. And yet God can give us a heart of thankfulness for what he's doing in the midst of the mess. May this be an encouragement to you. Verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord or Yahweh. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. And here's the sacrifice that Jonah gives with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Gratitude is a proper response when we are forgiven of our sin. Church family, I want to encourage you whether it's today or tomorrow or the next day, because our sin is constant. When you are repenting of your sin, it's good for you to take a look at your own heart, to go, am I repentant in self-pity? Am I repentant and angry with myself? Or am I repentant and having a heart of gratitude for what God has done for me? Because one leads to life. The other just leads to flat-out frustration. And beating ourselves up to no end where we can't move forward. And God's design and desire for us is that when we receive that forgiveness through his son. Is for us to grow in Christ. And for Jonah, he grew more in the belly of the whale than he did when he was giving his messages outside. And here's what's interesting. Had Jonah lived the rest of his life in the belly of the whale, where would his heart probably stayed? Probably grateful. How quick we are to try to run out of our difficult circumstances, aren't we? When sometimes what we experience is, no matter how difficult it is, I seem more near to God in those moments than I do when everything is going the way that I want it to. God is gracious, even in the messiness of our lives. We'll look at one more. One more. Gratitude brings abundant joy to life's storms. Gratitude brings abundant joy to life's storms. 
Um, when you think of the word joy during Christmas, what comes to mind? I'm not looking for spiritual answers here. Just throw it out there. Good. I'm so glad someone said presence. Thank you. <laughs> you guys are giving me all these spiritual answers. Someone's finally like, presents. <laughs> a culture of receiving than we do giving we give to, for the purpose of what of, of receiving that's the way the world works uh, in God's economy and God's kingdom it's entirely different he gives freely because there's nothing we could give him back it's the beauty of what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is we are to share the love of Christ without expecting anything in return because what's already been given to us is more than what we need in Christ and when we think about this point, gratitude brings abundant joy to life storms. That is a difficult thing for us to find. Not only a grateful heart, but a joyful heart in the midst of difficult circumstances. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 27. We're going to begin in verse 33. Acts chapter 27. The Apostle Paul is nearing the end of his life, not so much because of his age, but because of his circumstances. Paul had been going around all of Macedonia and teaching the good news of Jesus. And because of that teaching, he stirred up a lot of trouble, both among Greeks and Jews, but in particular, his Jewish brethren, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And some have brought charges against him in which they desire to condemn him to death. And Paul does something incredibly interesting. He appeals to who? Good. Say that a little louder. He appeals to who? To Caesar. Right? The emperor of Rome. Do you know who Caesar was during Paul's day? It was Nero. The fact that Paul appeals to Nero is mind-boggling to me. What do you know about Nero? He was violent. He was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians that sat in that emperor's seat. He hated Christians. And yet Paul appeals to Caesar. And so Paul is being transferred from a place in Macedonia into Rome. And he's put on a grain ship, which is headed for Rome, under the care of certain Roman guards, along with quite a few other people on this boat. And as the boat is going out, it's the fall season, and Paul comes to the ship's captain. And remember, Paul knows a thing or two about being on a ship. How many of you remember how many times Paul was shipwrecked, according to the scriptures? At least three. At least three that we know of. And Paul goes to the captain of the ship, and he goes, Hey, I perceive that if we go any further and we don't find a safe harbor, it's not going to go well for us. Now remember, Paul is simply just a prisoner. And so the captain doesn't listen to him. And they think they have a favorable headwind. And as they're going, they're hit by what's called in the Greek a Euroclidon, which is just a typhoon. And this typhoon pushes them out to sea. It strips them of all control of the ship. And for two weeks, 14 days, the Bible tells us, it pummels this grain ship. Now, Roman grain ships were not small. There were 276 men on board this ship. It was large. It was packed down with grain, which was very important to get to Rome. 
And they're doing everything they can in these 14 days. They're throwing the tackle overboard. They're throwing the ropes overboard. They're getting rid of the sails, whatever they can. And nothing is working. 14 days in. How many of you have ever gotten seasick for like an hour before? Can you imagine 14 days just being tossed to and fro like crazy on a boat? And yet here's what's beautiful about Paul's life. He was a man who knew how much God loved him. And he knew how much God loved him because he had been forgiven much. We all remember Paul's previous life. What did he used to do? He used to kill and imprison Christians. And Paul over and over again in his letters talks about being the chief of sinners. And that he used to be a vile persecutor of Christians. Paul has been forgiven much and it's given him a heart of gratitude. And in the midst of this storm, here's what Paul is thinking and doing. This is amazing. There are 275 other people on this boat that can't go anywhere. They're going to learn about Jesus. I'll give them 14 days to think about how much they want to stay alive. This is Paul's mindset. This is where his brain is at. He's not worried about himself. He's not concerned about his own life. He's looking at the totality of all the other men on the ship going, there is a tremendous opportunity for Greeks and Jews alike on this boat. Prisoners and guards. Men who work the grain industry. Men who are workers on the ship. For all of these people to come to know who God is. This is the abundant joy that Paul found. His eyes were not set on the storm, but was he in the middle of a storm? You bet he was. And he felt the rain like anybody else. He felt the wind like everybody else. He probably got sick like everybody else. But he wasn't afraid like everybody else. Because his eyes were set on something different. And look at Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. That's two weeks these people have been without food. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. Uh, Paul had been visited by an angel that gave him a message that as long as everybody stayed in the boat, they would be safe. Oh, and there's a caveat. And you're going to be shipwrecked, but you'll all live. Imagine having to give that message to the other 275 people on the boat. But Paul doesn't simply just give the message. He does something to minister to their bodies and to their spirit. He goes, guys, this has been a long storm. And I don't know when it's going to let up. But you need some nourishment. You need some strength. And so Paul takes bread. Look at verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and did what? And gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. What is Paul doing right here? He's being an example and he's literally in the middle of a storm providing communion and the message of Jesus Christ for these men who I bet after two weeks got to a deep place of hopelessness. 
because this is how God works. We often find ourselves or we meet others or we're walking alongside others that get to these places of hopelessness and God willing, there's a Paul in their midst to go, hey, I can't fix this circumstance for you, but take nourishment and hope because someone has already done something for you that guarantees your life is secure. This is the message that Paul was teaching them. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out what? The wheat into the sea. This is an incredible picture of God's pursuit of our life and our response to what he's already done for us. This was a grain ship. It had one sole purpose. What was it? To get grain from one place all the way to Rome. Because without grain, people don't eat. And the moment they take this bread, it's like their last supper. They put their hands into the life of God and they get rid of all the baggage that they came with. Because that's the power of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't face storms. It doesn't mean that there's not lion's dens to deal with. It doesn't mean that our own sin gets us into bad circumstances and there's real consequences for our sin. But it does mean that the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and the joy he brings literally transcends the circumstances that are here on earth. God does not make light of your circumstances, but he is greater than your circumstances. God does not make light of people's suffering, but he suffered far more and understands. God does not discriminate against any person, but freely offers his gift of life to all. And usually that comes when we come to the end of ourself, when we come to the shipwreck. When we come to the lion's den, when we come to feeling like there's no hope for us, this is where God meets us. And our response is to be a heart, to have a heart of gratitude. The last point I'll leave you with today is that gratitude is satisfaction in God's greatness, not our own. Gratitude is satisfaction in God's greatness, not our own. The reason why I love this point so much is because it's measurable in our lives. Are we pursuing our own greatness? In our marriages, in our parenting, in our singleness, in our business. Are we pursuing our own greatness in the way that we portray ourselves to others? Whether it be on social media or just walking around. We can measure whether we are pursuing our own greatness or whether we are seeking the greatness of God. If you remember John the Baptist, he says, I must become less and less and he must become greater and greater and I rejoice at his success. Church family, this week, take inventory of your gratitude. Regardless of your circumstances, is your heart joyful? Are you experiencing thankfulness 
when you ask for forgiveness for your sin? Do you know and put into practice how loved you are by God instead of falling in love with your circumstances or seeking a way out of the current one you find yourself in now? For gratitude is satisfaction in God's greatness and not our own. Let's pray together. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.